1912, New York was rocked by the echoes of gunfire. Gamblers and corrupt cops, stool pigeons, and an ambitious commissioner, they all played a role in the Becker-Rosenthal affair. In today's episode, we will introduce you to the key players and events of our story. Stick around. Hello, Annie. How are you tonight? Uh, doing good. How about you? Okay. So this is interesting. Uh, I mean, we've only been talking about doing this for like ever. Yeah. But we are going to try out this little recording business and talk about some interesting characters and uh, see where this uh, where this thing takes us. Yes, this is... Kings of New York podcast. Welcome, welcome. And this is chapter one. Goodbye, Herman. Hi, Herman. We don't even say hello to him. We just say goodbye right off the bat. All right, well, let's get into it. I mean, everybody knows about the mob. Everybody knows about the gangs and the gangsters and Chicago and Murder, Inc. And all of those wonderful things, the Cosa Nostra, the five families. You know, we we go as far back as the gangs of New York, Leo DiCaprio movie, highly recommend. A little bit of our, out of our time range, but uh, still a great watch. You know, where we're, we're introduced to... Dead Rabbits, the Bowery Boys, the Wyos, uh, so-called after their call to each other. Um, it was very distinct. That's how I people... Like, wow! Basically, yeah, that's how people knew that they were in the neighborhood. The The Bowery Boys, an excellent podcast run by lovely human beings now, uh, were absolutely ruthless at the time. And as were all of these other guys, you know, some of them would wear animal skins uh the dead rabbits versus others that would dress up uh super fancy and wear top hats and sneak into gala events and then rob everybody blind but overall you know we've got pretty dense history of crime in new york especially in the five points and then we also kind of in media have been shown the like opposite the complete polar opposite of that, which is, you know, the Gilded Age and vaudeville and all of these beautiful opulent palaces. You know, we've got the the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and the Astors and Carnegie, all of those super rich people that were, you know, the kind of rich people that we want these days where, you know, as a flex, they would gift a library to the neighborhood as opposed to send somebody to, to space. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? There's another demographic, another driving force that indisputably shaped New York and had a ripple on the effect of American history. These are the kings and the kingmakers of the Lower East Side, of the Bowery, of Brooklyn, of Harlem, of people that were either immigrants or first-generation Americans. They were born and raised in cramped tenements. They escaped unspeakable hardships in their homelands and they faced new impossibilities in a country that promised streets that were paved with gold and endless opportunities. And these guys were in a very unique place in history that never existed before and has never existed since. And they took full advantage of their situation. They seized the day, they created opportunities for themselves because if they didn't, nobody would hand them success on a silver platter. Well, that's it. What we're going to do here is not your typical New York history podcast for many reasons, but it's a look into the lives of these people. And it's specifically looking into the lives of people that seem to have been written out of history. A lot of the names we're going to bring up are people that don't really come up in textbooks, don't really come up. There's, you know, maybe one or two biographies out there as part of like a context of a different story. You know, they're they're revisited in somewhat obscure circumstances, such as, uh, you know, poor immigrant origin stories. You get that from Disney a lot. Obscure musicals that then are revived as a Broadway show. We'll get into that later. But the other thing is, the, the other thing that's not typical about this is that we're not New Yorkers, as you could probably tell. Not from New York 
I grew up in the Deep South. I lived in New York for about four or five years in pursuit of theater. And then I eventually found myself moving to Austin, Texas, where I've been for the past 10 years and have have only traveled to New York back and forth here and there. This is Annie. Yeah, my- I'm Annie. <laughs> Annie and I have known each other for about 20 years. We met online over a, uh, a fandom that kind of tangentially got us here. I am in Toronto, originally an immigrant kid from Russia, uh, moved here in 97 and have lived in Toronto all of my life. And I've been in New York for, I, I did this math earlier today, that I've been in New York for a total of maybe a week and a half in my entire life, <laughs> despite being like obsessed with it and now getting into this uh, podcast. So I think it's for everybody, for us for sure, it's a testament to just how fascinating the city is, how fa- fascinating New York history is to like hook us that badly into it that we're exploring this history from the distance that we're at. Yes. In the same way, this story is about a group of New Yorkers pushed together by fate, by circumstances. They lived in the 1890s and they forged their own way from a young age. They became a unique sort of family. They would take care of their own, but then they would take care of this family that they had made maybe even better than they would take care of their like actual families, even into their deaths. They tried to make sure that other people were taken care of. These were politicians, these were beat cops, they were performers, they were pressmen, they were tailors, butchers, printmen, cart pushers. And let's be honest, they were gangsters. Uh, They were transitioning from (laughs) disorganized forms of pocket crimes to structures and honor codes that went through almost every level of society that they were a part of. Yep, they were the kings of New York. (laughs) They were the kings of New York. And often they called themselves as much, which is the best part of it. And you, you go into this time frame and there is, we've got the king of the Bowery, the Ice King, the king of the newsboys, like every other guy, just, you know, might as well go all out. Yeah, if if you are at all influential or not, you were the king of something, you know, just a very humble kind of folk. This is the Kings of New York podcast, where we are going to explore these lives, talk about these wonderful people, wonderful being a term used very loosely here. Fascinating. There we go. Fascinating. We're in chapter one. Chapter one. The crime of the century prior to 1930s. So known as uh, the murder at the Metropole. Yeah. And now kind of lost to time and obscurity because... It's, it happened 110 years ago. We go all the way back to 1912. The year was 1912. July 15th of 1912. To be precise, we're in New York City. It's the early teens. We, we're not in Prohibition yet. We're theoretically, by definition, out of the Gilded Age. But all of the people we're going to be talking about grew up in this environment. And, uh, you know, huge income split, huge background differences between everybody that we're going to be talking about. Let's set the scene. July 15th, 1912. What was going on that night? There was a heat wave. People were sleeping on the rooftops and fire escapes. And to the more the people who had more opulence or could afford to would go out to cottages in Rockaway, Coney Island, Seagate, Broadway, (laughs) and Vaudeville are strong. 
and the Titanic disaster, which happened in April, is still on people's minds. Let's see, there are elections coming up in October. Politicians are doing their final pushes for voters and support. And then there's the Hotel Metropole, which is a place where it's sort of like a celebrity hangout. The Cafe Metropole is. It's a lavish hotel, got lots of long-term rooms. People would rent out rooms and uh, and some people kind of just stayed in the hotel, like lived in the hotel. There was a gorgeous bar. There was a restaurant on the main floor and it's like open into the early morning as well for anybody coming from the theater crowd or coming from Madison Square Gardens or um, coming from fights or bets or uh, different places. It's just a place to be, a place to hang out. So who's at the Hotel Metropole? Yeah, so first of all, we've got the Metropole at this point is is being run by the Cosadine brothers. Again, kings we will get into another time. The general consensus is like, this is the place to be. You're absolutely right. And it, you know, would only get nice and, and, and busy by, you know, one or two in the morning. So it's, you know, catering to a very specific late night crowd at the time. The the rules were pretty lax for noise regulations and, and things like that. And so you have these places that would just go after hours. And it wasn't a particular secret that this place catered to a very diverse clientele. And so that night, for example, we've got we've got a whole bit like the room is packed. Some of the people that are there, we've got Miss Sadie Sherman, who was apparently an up an up and coming actress at the time. And she's dining with, you know, a table full of people, including Mr. William J. File, who uh, is a police officer. He was off duty that night. And then a whole bunch of other kind of high rollers. And at the same time, we've got a room full of gangsters. And, you know, it's it was very much a hangout for gamblers, for kind of, you would call it the seedy underbelly, but at the same time, they they didn't present themselves as such and they weren't seen as such at the time, right? Every, everything was a balance. We, we have a phenomenal example of the Metropole in, uh, in the song Ace in the Hole, mm-hmm. right? Where, I mean, the, the, the entire song, the lyrics of the song are pretty obvious that... Uh, this is James Dempsey's version of Ace in the Hole. There are like a bunch of different songs called Ace in the Hole. But this is in particular uh, James Dempsey's. And it's sort of like it talks about the crapshooters, the, the mobsters. It talks about um, celebrities. It speaks about um, these are all the types of people that are at the Metropole. There's Cornshaw and there's Houston. And you find crap shooters strolling around the dear old Metropole. Well, but, and that's it, right? It's, it's a popular hangout. It's around the corner from Times Square. I, I try to look up what was going on with Broadway at the time, and like you've got a dozen shows letting out every night. You know, some places were closed on Monday nights, which is an important detail for later. But generally, yeah, you've got. And at the time, I feel like it was a lot more European. Like I'm, I'm I was looking at some of the time frames of certain events, and it looks like you would have your supper, you would do your thing, you know, you you wrap up work. And it was only like after eleven that you that things would really start picking up. And so my I'm wondering like when did these people ever sleep? All of these events like they're staying out till two, three, four in the morning, having drinks and gambling and and all of these other pursuits that you know to us now seem like oh you know it's so late like they they're up to no good. But realistically, about fifty percent of them were up to no good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the probably a lot of the performers and and the boxers, they probably didn't have to train until later in the day anyway, because their fights were at night. Their fights were during the evenings and shows were during the evening. So, you know, they had 
the, the night was young for them. Yeah. I, I would imagine with all that adrenaline that they had post shows or post fights, they'd want to stay up and then they'd probably sleep in the mornings and then wake up in the in the afternoons to do it all again. Yeah, fair enough. That's actually a really good point. And a lot of who we're talking about are people that were very much in that demographic, right? That they didn't have, they didn't keep regular office hours. Let's put it that way. So we are in New York. It's an insane heat wave in 1912. We don't have any other form of media, really. Like we have, you know, forms of entertainment. But in terms of the news cycle, the thing that we're looking at is newspapers, right? And this is something really important to keep in mind is that newspapers, to use a terrible self-reference newspapers were king you know we don't have radio we certainly don't have tv so where are people going to get their news right a lot of what goes on if it's not in the newspapers it didn't happen uh the news cycle is only so long until people get bored or get distracted or something else shiny comes along regardless of how terrible ongoing news might be so at the time, we're looking at newspapers are the only form of getting information out, getting the news out, getting getting people informed. And so a lot of our story, we're getting out of newspapers. So there's a lot of bias. There's a lot of distracting elements. And, uh, you know, to go back, like, there's a lot of things that were actively written out and left out. I mean, the Titanic at that point, that was four months prior and it, nobody really talks about it anymore. I'm pretty sure we talk about it more now than yeah. there was like fundraisers for survivors. And I'm sure like the day today was still pretty important. And, you, you know, you and I ended up at the docks with the, with the beautiful monument. But it is very important at the time to make it into the newspapers. And the story that you get into the newspapers is the quote unquote truth. It was very easy to alter the story, which also makes it really difficult now for research. And you and I have talked about it quite a bit, right? Of Yeah. It's yeah. It's people, people who either avoid their names being in the papers or misinformation or different papers having their different biases. So what is the truth? Yeah. The real story. A hundred percent. And the other issue is that a lot of reporters, because this was the only form of getting the information out and you could have up to, you know, six editions a day, if it was really busy news cycle, they were kind of rushing to get the information out. So you have crazy inconsistencies for names, addresses, spelling, even what actually happened. You know, one reporter could be, reporting one thing and somebody else is going to be you know doing a completely different angle and so amalgamating all of that into a cohesive what actually happened is really difficult 110 years later much less at the time and i'm sure they could gain that they could definitely take advantage of that so what we have the story that we're about to tell is primarily taken from newspaper articles clippings a lot of reading between the lines. We've tried to go to primary sources as much as possible. We are very lucky to have access to this information now that a lot of it's been digitized. A lot of it's been digitized in the last few years. So I guess upside to the pandemic and everybody being at home. <laughs> because we and wouldn't... And an upside is that we got to develop this a bit more than we would have if there wasn't a bit of pandemic uh, i don't think that we would have gotten together had there not been a pandemic there definitely is something to say about needing a project to <laughs> to keep busy and somehow distract ourselves a little bit from yeah the daily things that were going on so there may be inconsistencies in what we talk about there's definitely inconsistencies between what's been published so far there's a lot of wonderful books out there on the not sorry 
I'm going to correct myself. There are not a lot of books out there on this, but the books that there are out there, the variety. Some of them are misguided. Yes. That's, That's a very elegant way of putting that. And I do think a large part of it is that just access to information, right? So we are at the Metropole. We were very lucky enough to to experience this place, and it's it's still it's a different. I mean, it's different in that the people that that work there expect a certain crowd. So when we came in there, we got sort of like a little pat on the head, and like, oh, you want to hear about Broadway stories, don't you? And we came in there with a completely different angle. We said, no, we want to hear about the murders that happened here. We want to hear about all the crime. Yeah, and and kind of set ourselves apart. So much so that we got two rounds of limoncellos. (laughs) I'm still Uh, not sure what to think about that. Like, I don't know if that was like a, you're you're in or like... Let's let's get you nice and and uh, and soft in the head, but what we did also enjoy that night was some Tom Collinses, zizzes. Mm-hmm. Tom, exactly in honor of a gentleman, Carmen exactly who was there that night on July fifteenth, nineteen twelve. He is sitting at the back. And we did try to get a table close to where, where he would have been sitting. He's sitting at the back. He did a pretty good job at yeah. getting that back table. Because as much as the, the, the space has been renovated, you still get a really good sense of what it was like. Yeah. Which is always really nice to to to, to kind of get the sense of the history of the place. To further set the scene, I would imagine it would be filled with cigar and cigarette smoke mm-hmm. because... Everybody smoked at the time, right? And everybody smoked inside. And everybody smoked inside. And it's a heat wave with like no end in sight, not a cool breeze. So it's stifling. There, There's mention in the in newspapers that the Metropole at least had fans, ceiling fans, which is why people flocked to the bar. And it was just basically pushing hot air around and just made it worse. So there was there was no relief other than for this gentleman in his late 30s, sitting in the back, drinking a Tom Collins one after another, probably had some ice in his drink, which would have been a luxury at the time. He was still very well put together. And here accounts differ. Either he is in a really nice suit or that he is sweating his neck off and you know the his shirt sleeves are rolled up and his shirt's unbuttoned depends on who you want to believe but i imagine he would be covered in his gold jewelry and this is a really interesting detail that i recently came across is that he loved gold jewelry so he would have his like rings he He liked to remind people of (laughs) what he did for a living i suppose so he would have this like gold belt buckle and a gold tie clip and a pin and all of these fancy things that he made a point of wearing everywhere that he went. He's in a very good mood tonight. He's sitting and he's chatting up whoever is willing to sit with him, whoever is willing to pass by him. Thing though is that while he's all jovial and excited and you know, going through the newspaper that just came out. Um, people seem to be hesitant around him. He's got some people sitting with him and they're almost reluctant to be there. And he has a couple visitors through the night, but mostly he's there to celebrate this story that he just had published. It's a, it's one in a series of affidavits that Herman Rosenthal just finally managed to get a newspaper print And he is talking about the takedown to end all takedowns, taking down the biggest bastard of them all in the city at this point, Lieutenant Charles Becker, who is a dirty cop. He is a grafter. He is in bed with all of the other gangsters. He's just the worst sort of cop that has 
soiled the reputation of the city. And and at this point, you you imagine that, you know, talking trash like that so openly would not be the best of ideas. But we're at a time where police graft is a very poorly hidden secret. And at this point, everyone knows about it. The DA and the commissioner, as much as they want to catch the gangsters and shut down illegal operations, they want to clean up the city in whatever format they can. Rosenthal is as excited about his article coming out where he blatantly names Lieutenant Becker, but he's also excited because he's got the DA on his side. He's got the interest of uh, Commissioner Waldo. He's got the personal protection of Tim Sullivan, who is Mr. Tammany Hall, the leader of Tammany Hall at the time, big political organization in the city that basically just ran everything. So Rosenthal is in a very good place. He is, you know, squealing left, right, and center. And yet, finally, somebody's listening to him and is willing to give him this platform. And not only that, they're actually doing something about, you know, all these things that he's saying. Becker's going to be in trouble. And if Becker's going to be in trouble, who else is going to be in trouble, right? He's there. He's knocking back drinks. He's having one drink after another. He's joking with people. He's got so some people come in and he's just, you know, has them join him at, at the table. He's got a stack of these newspapers that he just picked up from the new, nearby newsstand. And he just, he just won't shut up about who who's Herman Rosenthal uh, other than this kind of annoying little worm of a man and I apologize for describing him as such but that's how he's presented in a lot of ways Herman Rosenthal was a Jewish immigrant from Estonia who was born in 1874 he was raised on the streets of the Lower East Side I believe that we visited one of his neighborhoods, one of the places that he lived. He ran with the other neighborhood boys. He was a newsie. He sold newspapers on the streets. The crew that he ran with all all found varying levels of success by 1912. So all of them were pursuing operations that dealt with underground gambling, horse betting, and yes, even the flesh trade. They dealt with girls. Even uh, Herman was known to even encourage his wives during hard times to, uh, to make a little money on the side. So he was a person who would seize on any opportunity He was not a scrupulous kind of person. No. No. He, his second wife, Lillian, was, uh, was very well known in certain circles for her skills. And he would just blatantly put her to work. Uh, He was known to go into neighborhoods that were not his territory and try to poach the girls working those streets and those neighborhoods to come over to work for him. So he did not make friends. And the thing is, he's like, these are the people he grew up with. These are the newsboys that he had known since he was a kid. They were they were all in it together. And then he would turn around and steal their girls or steal their corner or try to open up a gambling den down the street from where somebody was already planning on opening up. Yeah. And then in, in addition to that, everybody knew that all of the guys who were running these gambling uh, places knew that you would have to pay someone. You would have to pay the cops. You'd have to pay to keep yourself protected and also pay a little hush money. And for some reason, Herman just didn't think that this was right. He, he took a stand of justice. This is unfair. I should be able to do my illegal business openly without having to pay any cops off or pay any other gamblers off. He didn't have a lot of friends. He was losing friends very quickly. And in refusing to pay 
some of this protection money or hush money, he pissed off a lot of cops. And eventually in April, 1912, he was raided and he was shut down. And he was very upset about that. So he went to many different places to try to uncover the corruption of these cops and these dirty gamblers who were doing these operations. One reporter took a chance on him and helped him to write this tale of the police corruption. And this reporter was Herbert Baird. Who would go on to win a Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism in 1917. So this guy was, he was good at his job. He was good at weaseling into stories. Yeah, because he would get, uh, he would eventually get the Pulitzer Prize for reporting on uh, events in World War One, and having an inside scoop, basically, and, uh, you know, how amazing of a reporter he was, later to discover that he finagled his way into getting these stories and this was a very similar situation that it was he was young he was um he was just starting out wasn't he this was his first big story it was as much for him yeah it was as much for him as for rosenthal that you know they they had to get the story out swope uh would go on uh, he's been compared to gatsby that these lavish parties that gatsby threw were kind of modeled on these these parties that Swope would, would throw, that eventually he would become that wealthy and that well-recognized. And he started off with this little story about police graft in 1912. Rosenthal liked to think that he was immune, that he had certain protections. He was personal friends with Arnold Rothstein, for example. He had grown up reporting directly to Tim Sullivan, from what I understand, and this is kind of me putting some pieces together, and I possibly am wrong about it, but uh, Tim Sullivan in the in the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, owned a series of saloons in the Lower East Side. You know, how do you get people to be loyal to you, regardless of what you do as a politician? And that's acts of kindness. So employing recent immigrants who might not have as many opportunities. Tim Sullivan in his prime would show up to to the docks as immigrants are coming into the country into the city and would give out free shoes and food and all of these things. So he was the go-to person in the Lower East Side and uh, his saloons are where uh, he kind of reigned supreme, but also where he would have these immigrant families work for him. And so they, they were obviously very loyal. And so what I was able to find is the only mention of a Rosenthal family um, in the 1890s was a saloon keeper. And uh, it was the father and, and the family and a whole bunch of lodgers and a young Herman who... I'm guessing grew up, you know, in this environment. Um, he grew up loyal to Tim Sullivan because that was who was, you know, putting bread on the table ultimately and and who protected him and protected his friends. By the time, uh, you know, 1912 rolls around, Herman claims that he is personal friends with Tim Sullivan. He has borrowed money from him for his operations and he is not afraid of a single thing because he firmly believes that Tim Sullivan will always get him out of a bind. When he was questioned, when he when he was putting this affidavit out, Arnold Rothstein tried to talk him out of it. He'd, he'd offered him money to, to, to drop the story before it got out of hand because he said, you're not, you already don't have a lot of friends and you're definitely not going to make any more with this get out of town while we, while you still can. Here's 500 bucks. Just go. And Rothstein was another Tim Sullivan boy, gentleman, friend, that uh, basically Sullivan said, you know, Rothstein and, and Rosenthal, these are, these are my boys that I rely on. And, you know, if only everybody was like them, that these, you know, wonderful 
pillars of society. <laughs> you know, when Arnold Rothstein tells you to get out and keep your mouth shut, like that's, I would think that's saying something. Yeah. Then earlier, his, his own wife was telling him, hey, lay low, let's not be so flashy here. And this is coming from Lillian, who is, she's quite flashy herself. She's not, she's not necessarily one to shy away from attention. That's so right. So when she, if she's the one telling him, hey, we should lay low for a bit, that's, that's saying something. Yeah. And Lillian was described as this, like, ample-bodied woman with bright dyed red hair. And she was proud of her red hair. Everybody made fun of her for having, like, this box well i mean not box it's time but it's this fake red hair and and that was her signature look and so between her and rosenthal walking around covered head to toe in gold and monogrammed pieces they were both a very flashy couple so when she tells you you cut it out and keep your mouth shut that's that's definitely saying something he kind of turned a deaf ear to everybody refused to listen to reason put out these articles he had another one coming out and he was he was actually supposed to be meeting with the DA and the commissioner the next day and that was the other thing that he was talking about while he was you know sitting sipping on his Tom Collins at one o'clock in the morning at the back of the Metropole is I've got another meeting lined up tomorrow the, the commissioner finally wants to talk to me about this I'm gonna spill the beans you know he's gonna spill the beans on everybody like he's got dirt and he is not afraid to sling it at anybody that comes his way because tim sullivan will get him out of it he's gonna walk away regardless of what he says he is going to be okay so he's sitting at the back of the metropole he's got these newspapers that the headline is Gambler reveals police corruption, or the depths of the po of police corruption. And he is ready to, to do this thing. The other thing, and, and this wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to throw this in. He tried to do this once before. Uh, in 1909, he, he tries to blow the whistle on another police lieutenant, but that doesn't go anywhere. A lot of the story that we get in, you know, him claiming what's going on with Becker, it seems like it's a story repeating itself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get the sense that Rosenthal is this like one track pony of take everybody down in a firestorm, basically, <laughs> and still hope to walk away from it unscathed. Which, as history tells us, does not always... Doesn't always pan out for you. Yeah. But, so Rosenthal is at the Metropole. It's about 1 a.m. And Bridgie Weber, uh, another gambler, comes to the Metropole. He checks in with Rosenthal. It's said that they exchange a few words. And then Weber went away. He and Weber, they have, like, a weird history. They're either friends or their rivals it depends on the season it actually just it really does depend sometimes they're described as friends sometimes they're they hate each other it it all depends on who you ask um so he comes in he doesn't stick around he kind of disappears there are cabs coming through the streets and then there's an a cop who keeps uh, waving off the cabs. He's not letting any of the cars pull up to the Metropole. What's going on there? Because the Metropole is a hopping place. It's a place where lots of people are hanging out. So, of course, there are going to be cabs picking people up and letting people go. But then there's cop that's not letting them through. And across the street, there is the Elks Club. Which, yeah, this was a benevolent fraternal society at the time. So this was like one of those like stone cutters kind of a thing. An all gentlemen's secret club yeah. kind of a thing. Supposed place where Herman and Becker would sometimes meet as friends. Though yeah. 
Becker denied it, I think, at, at some point. Becker denied ever having met Rosenthal. Yeah. But Rosenthal was like, we were best friends. He gave me a kiss. We spent New Year's Eve together at the Elf Club. Yeah. Lieutenant Becker was not necessarily the, a good person. No. He, he, he started off as a good cop. And then, you know, you have to survive, right? And I think we will, we will talk about him more in detail in another episode. But something to understand about him is that he was... He was part of the strong arm squad at the time. It was a it was a special group put together by the commissioner to deal with the gamblers, to deal with all of these issues. But but it was also kind of assumed that the strong arm squad were the grafters themselves, that they would kind of go around, collect all this hush money that you were talking about, and you know, one for you, one for me, kind of a situation deal and and between the gamblers and the cops they had a deal of how things were to be run you know the fact that the the metropole is where it is the ox club is across the street so there's eyes on the metropole from everywhere there's a couple of restaurants in the area as well we've got uh george cohen's theater on the corner because this is on 43rd and just off broadway Mm -hmm. so it's a very busy place especially at one in the morning on, on a monday night there's there's a lot of people out on the street there's a lot of staff and you're right all of a sudden the cars stop coming and it's an empty street bridgie's come by rosenthal doesn't think much of it he's just happy that like all of everybody is here to come talk to him because he's written this masterpiece of an article this is where things get a little odd because a man walks in and we do not know who this person is And that's a question for the ages, but an unknown man walks in, goes right to Herman's table and says, there's somebody waiting for you outside. You got, there's a guy waiting, come out. And Herman seems like he was expecting him. And he had been saying to his table mates earlier, his guests or whoever had come by that, you know, just in a, in a, in a little bit, just in a little bit, I'm going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. And so when this man comes, he jumps to his feet. Rosenthal, you know, jumps to his feet, gathers up his things. You imagine he downs the rest of his drink. Or he doesn't, because he doesn't, he's like that. I mean, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's he's already had a bunch of Tom Collinses anyway. Yeah, he's he's got, he's happy. He's having a good night. Yeah. And so he follows this man out. Who knows what he's expecting? But he's expecting something. Mm-hmm. And as he walks out, he doesn't even register the five gunshots that cut through the night. Three hit him, two hit his head, and the third actually hits as he's coming down. And two more go off to the side. He doesn't have enough time to even understand what's going on as he collapses in a pool of blood in a pile of newspapers dead on the sidewalk in front of Metropole. And witnesses say that they see four different men hop into a gray Packard and this gray Packard just tears through the street. It's said that the driver was in a panic, that someone stuck a gun to the back of his head to get him moving because he later claimed that he couldn't drive and that that he he was driving fast on purpose just so that he would get stopped by the police for speeding. So this car peels out, disappears into the night. The crowds come out of the Metropole. They want to give the body a look. Said that like a waiter is called to uh, to, to put a, a tablecloth over the body so, to stop the people from gawking. There's cops in the building. We have William J. File, who is an off-duty cop. He runs out trying to catch up, but the crowd is so thick at the door. Allegedly, he actually saw Rosenthal in the doorway, but the crowd was so thick by the time that he even just got to his feet that he couldn't get out to the street fast enough 
to catch the the car taking off and it's this scene like you the most like gangster movie like stereotypical scene of these guys are like hopping into the car hopping onto the footboards of the car and they're taking off hanging off the door off this um off this touring and there's a there's and a there there's are, a scramble right they're like there's a waiter who claims that the plate number is this there's a musician who is out there who's saying no that wasn't the number it was this and then there was someone else who is like super insistent about what the number on the plate was so we've got about three to four different numbers that are reported and and it adds to the confusion because you have to imagine there's not a lot of cars in the city at this point so you have a you have a plate number you are pretty set to figure out pretty quickly who that car belongs to but we have you know this the scramble everybody's yelling out numbers and you know nothing is just really written down the cops that are there are telling witnesses that they're wrong which is the crazy part of this is uh william j file finally flags down a cab and and this is keeping in mind as you said the cabs weren't coming through somebody was stopping them at the, at the top of the street and so finally uh file flags down another cop and they get a cab together and they chase after the car but they lose it pretty quickly because they couldn't get to the car fast enough. Car chases weren't uh, weren't as big a thing at that time. <laughs> this is like this is probably like one of the first car chases involving you know gangsters hanging off the side of the car. It gets weird because yeah, there's the all of a sudden there's cops everywhere. There's all of these witnesses. Nobody is a reliable witness, and the 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 witnesses that would then prove reliable were arrested. There was the the waiter Lewis Krauss at the Elks Club, and he's yelling out like, "No, this is the license plate number," and he gets cuffed and brought in to for questioning as if he is a criminal himself. And they and and the cops are telling him, "No, you're wrong. This is you're absolutely wrong. You're making this up. You're ruining our investigation. You're," and so you you got to wonder what what was going on and and who really was who was who there's a lot of people that end up kind of at the scene conveniently so Bridgie Weber uh, who had visited about an hour earlier who was on his way back to his own gambling den was allegedly seen by yet another gambler running away from the scene as these shots had just been heard there's this, you know, all this confusion as to like, who is there? Why are they there? Um, you know, Jack Rose is not very far. All of these people that are conveniently nearby, including Jack Sullivan, who is sitting across the street in George Cohen's theater. And this is this is something that we put together that the the windows of the soda shop that he was sitting in, he would have been able to see everything that had happened, the car pull up, the shootout and everything. He is sitting there, he's having his soda or his egg cream. And it said that he was drinking a soda. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Somebody sticks their head into the, into the soda shop and says, Oh, there's been a shooting. Everybody runs out because one panic, but two, everybody wants to see the body. Mm -hmm. And Jack calmly stands up. And it's quoted that he takes his diamond tie pin and tucks it in under his tie because he knows what them them folks are like out on the street uh, in the crowd. And so he doesn't want to lose his diamond tie pin as he pushes through the crowd. And he gets, he calmly comes out. He tries to push through the crowd. He claims he's press, but that's a very loose association he is not a journalist i think according to the 1910 census he was in the newspaper distribution business but he uses that he's a newspaper man whatever that may mean but he He has a press pass he has a press pass that's and that's enough so he pushes through the crowd he gets to the eye of the storm the body on the street and that's when it hits him. His best man, his best friend, his like closest person in his life who paid for his wedding two years prior is dead on the street. And he drops to his knees 
and says, who done it, Hermie? Who done it? And obviously at this point, Herman, to be particularly gory, is missing half his head and cannot answer this question. And Jack stands to his feet and he says, goodbye, Herman, as the body is covered up. And that's that's the story. I mean, it was that was supposed to be the story, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a gambler that got shot for talking too much. And the story that we so far have read in numerous books and newspaper articles and retrospectives is that he upset far too many people, that he upset... And he had it coming. And he had it coming. He had it coming. That he upset Lieutenant Charles Becker enough that Becker colluded with the Lennox gang, who were under the... um, the guidance of Jack Zellig, very big man at the time, that they worked together to remove Rosenthal out of the equation before he he squealed even more and named even more names and got more people into trouble. Becker was the first cop to ever be tried, to be convicted and executed for a crime like this. Becker spent two years going through retrials, going through appeals, but there's no evidence that seems to be able to clear him. Three years later, in July, on the 30th of 1915, he is executed by an electric chair, and it was not a smooth run. Apparently, they had to charge it up three times before he passed. Four other gunmen were executed the year previous. They were part of the Lennox gang, Dago Frank, who uh, I don't even think was at the scene, but we'll get more into that later. We have Jip the Blood, Harry Horowitz, Louis Rosenberg, Lefty Louie, Whitey Lewis. They were all members of, of the Lennox gang. And Jack Zellig was also tried, wasn't he? Or... So Jack Zellig, no. Zellig, he was the leader of the Lennox gang. Conveniently died. He was a star witness and would be shot two days prior to when he's supposed to take the stand, allegedly during a robbery gone bad. But more on that later. Convenient. This is the key word. Other things that happened, Jack Sullivan was indicted and his name wouldn't be cleared until 1936. And he went to jail. He was in jail for 10 months after this despite the fact that this was his best friend he was still accused of murdering the guy let's see jack rose sam shep bridgie weber and harry valen who were at the scene of the crime who was placed uh they all walk away free because they took a deal they are definitely the sleaziest of all of them and definitely turn the story in their favor they were given a plea deal that, you know, if as long as they took the stand and as long as they told a story and as long as their story was similar, they walked away. And they really should not have Jack Rose. He's a very particular character, Billiard Ball Jack, because he had lost all of his body hair due, due to an illness when he was 14. Bridgie Weber, as, as we'd mentioned, kind of frenemies with Rosenthal. Yeah, they all had a lot of things to say on the stand and not a lot of truth to say on the stand. D.A. Whitman, the other Charles, became the commissioner. And by 1915, he was the governor. He benefited from this case, for sure. There were other politicians, other legal figures who were able to benefit from this case as well. Whitman, that was his entire platform for the initial election and then when he ran for governor again that was this was his platform of we cleaned up the city we fixed corruption there's no more corruption in new york dealt with all of the police graft issues because we executed becker there is this has been taken care of the end at the end of it all he was the only person with the power to pardon becker and have any hand in potentially having him saved 
and he did not. But, you know, as far as all these people are concerned, Becker bad, Rosenthal also bad, but he's dead. So moving on. Lieutenant Becker's family dispersed. They didn't want anything to do with the story of Charles Becker. They didn't see any point in trying to clear his name. They believed that he was responsible for this crime, but was he really? This is what we want to talk about. The Becker-Rosenthal affair was the thing that managed to stay in the news cycle for years. It broke the mold. Yeah, it was even written into F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. They talk about the when they shot Herman at the Metropole. It was the trending topic for many years and everybody was very remained very interested in you know what was Becker up to what was his wife up to here is this terrible thing that's going right up under our noses and it's let's reveal all of the bad things that these good supposedly good people are doing of course people are going to be fascinated Becker's own son from from his uh his second marriage refused to associate with Becker he he did not want to be known as his son and the unfortunate thing is that is what's been perpetuated by a lot of writing since however even his his uh younger brother I believe Jonathan was also in the police uh department He, he was a beat cop and that whole family packed up and moved in uh in 1915 they moved to Toronto and then uh, later on to Vancouver. And to this day, they still believe that Becker did it, that Becker was behind it all, and that he is this like black sheep of the family. But we have other stories about him. There's a, there's a bunch of books out there. You know, uh, Satan Circus by Mike Dash is, is a big one. We also have a bunch of other authors that we've come across that seem to suggest that this uh, agreed upon truth or fact that Becker did it, that Becker was the villain of it all, that that's not quite the case. We ourselves believe that Becker was innocent. We want to talk about the fact that an innocent man not necessarily a good person. He not did person. bad things. He was not a choir boy. But in this particular case, he was innocent. I'd like to think we have enough evidence and stories and read between the lines that we can safely say that in this particular case, Lieutenant Charles Becker was absolutely innocent. He did not kill Herman Rosenthal. He was not involved in this murder. In his last testimony, he he says that he is sacrificed for the sake of his friends. He sacrificed for his friends. He sacrificed for politics. There is a letter that he writes to his friends from Sing Sing Prison a couple days before he is finally executed. Where he asks, you couldn't help me, you've done all you could, but you couldn't help me in life. So please clear my name in death and prove my innocence. Whitman knows what he's done. His his time is coming, his judgment will, will come. Clear my name. And that's kind of stuck with us. We're here. To try and clear <laughs> Becker's name. Yeah. So, coming up, we will talk about... We will talk about the key players. We'll talk about who was Becker himself, who Jack Sullivan was, who Tim Sullivan was. We'll get into all of the different players in this case and some adjacent gentlemen and hopefully ladies because, you know, let's be real. I get the ladies in here. Yeah, let's get some ladies in here as well. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, history kind of leaves the women out. This is going to be a conversation about all the people that have been left out of history, that have been written out of history. For all of the name, the big names that we have heard 
in in our common knowledge of gangsters you know we've got Capone and Lansky and Lucky Luciano and Johnny Torrio and all of those fellas for every name that is known and is famous I'm gonna bet that there are at least two or three that are far more notorious but did not get caught to enough to be famous <laughs> to, to be known now and those are the people we're going to talk about so stay tuned stay tuned for more visit us we'll on be we'll be back visit us on all the socials at kings of new york podcast kings of new york podcast.com where we're going to put up our show notes we're going to put up some photos follow us on instagram and subscribe